0: We are in the book of Judges, chapter 16, continuing through. We left Samson last week, as it were, playing his little games with Delilah. And in the process, he allowed her to get closer and closer and closer and closer to his area of vulnerability. As with the previous lust affairs of Samson, his lust affair with Delilah turned out to be his ultimate undoing. For he got worn down with Delilah's nagging. And with his secret revealed, he violates the third and the final element of his special vow that was taken for him when he was still in utero, that being the vow of a Nazarite. Well, From what we can see and from everything we can tell that that we're given in the book of uh, Judges concerning Samson, he disdained his vow every step of the way. And the Lord ends up removing his unique empowerment of Samson so that when the Philistines snatch him from Delilah's lap, he finds himself powerless. We pick up in chapter 16, verse 21, and the Philistines seized him and gouged his eyes out and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved samson is not only conquered but he's humiliated being made sport of both by having his his eyes gouged out which was it did serve obviously some practical reasons for gouging out the eyes of a military leader but It was also, in the realm of the culture of the time, it was sort of the classic way of insulting one's enemy. It's something along the lines of, okay, so Samson, you were this once great feared conqueror, but now you're a helpless shadow of a man. And then to underscore this humiliation, Samson is made a grinder of the grain, which is routinely a woman's chore in the community. So the Philistines are loving their victory. And the text mentions that Samson's hair, though, was growing back. It's an interesting insertion into the story, I find. And I believe it's there primarily catering, in some sense, to the understanding of the main characters in the story. And what I mean by that is that we know that Samson's hair was not the source of his supernatural strength. Rather, it was the Lord's unilateral, autonomous decision to use Samson for his purposes. But there was an absolute connection with the oath of the Nazir. And when Samson violated the final tear of that oath pertaining to his hair, we are told in verse 20 that the Lord had left him. And when the Lord was with him, he was invincible. But now the Lord has left him. And there's a timeless principle here for all times, for all epics, for all cultures, and for all nations. And that is this, that no matter how great or how mighty or how strong or how superior any nation's military may be, the Lord can remove such in the blink of an eye. The prophet Isaiah wrote, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen, because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Again, in Psalms 20, David writes, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And frankly, Putin and Obama and all the other leaders of the world would do well to understand just who the Lord of the universe is. Verse 23, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon. It's actually probably pronounced based on the vowel pointing in the Hebrew, Dagon. But I've said it, Dagon, for so many years, I'm sticking with it. So there you go. The great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. So it's time for the Philistines to do their happy dance. But it's one thing to do a happy dance while gloating over the defeat of some earthly military commander. And it's altogether another thing to gloat over what is pretty much an illusion of victory of some worthless idol. In this case, the fish god, who is, who, which is who Dagon was, over the creator of the universe. So the Philistines, what they did is they make the bad mistake of having this premature celebration, not realizing that the last chapter in their story has been written. But we're able to see into the Philistines' future, and so we are able to see exactly what that last chapter is and how everything turns out. And that while they are doing the happy dance now, God's people will be doing the happy dance and not too far down the historical road. And our world now seems to be out of control. And it seems to be on this horrid path, especially where people of faith are concerned. And right now we get glimpses of the godless doing their happy dances whenever another tenet of the Christian faith is stomped underfoot and Christians are defeated in the courts and in the classrooms. But our last chapter is written, and we're just waiting for it to be read, so to speak, for it to be played out. It's the Philistines' day to gloat, though, but that's going to change. Verse 25, first part of it. And it so happened when, when they, the Philistines, were in high spirits that they said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. And I'll bet they were in high spirits because drinking was usually part of such revelry to the point of being uh, basically out of their minds. But they were having a great grand party and they bring Samson for the express purpose of amusing them. Now, the verse is translated variously, but all with the same basic meaning. And that is the Philistines want Samson to come before them now where they can continue humiliating him as he performs for them basically and is their primary entertainment for the, sea, for, the uh, for the evening. But the root there for the word amuse us comes from the word to laugh. So they're bringing him in to both make them laugh as well as for them to be able to laugh at him. And some believe that Samson was known, in fact, for having a sense of humor, which is evidenced by the clever riddle that he devised earlier on in his life with the lion and the honey. So they gathered together, the Philistines, in the temple of Dagon to be entertained by their own stand-up comic, who will literally, in a few verses, bring down the house. Rest of verse 25. So they called for Samson from the prison, and Samson entertained them, and they made him stand between the pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and the lords of the Philistines were there. And about three thousand men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to the Lord, and he cried out, saying, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Now, given what we've seen of Samson, this seems like just another classic impetuous act on the part of Samson. But the particular word here for vengeance does not indicate a personal revenge, which that in and of itself is quite a change, quite an evidence of growth on the part of Samson, but rather the word is used when speaking about just punishment or vindication. Verse 29. So Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it, so that the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. Now somewhat veiled in that text that I just read is the suggestion that Samson, although late in coming, has finally come to his spiritual senses. Samson finally gets it. He has always only ever been an instrument of the Lord, who was to use him, if you remember going back to the beginning of his life and his call, he was going to be used by God to begin, not to bring the finality to the Philistines, but to begin to rouse God's people from their spiritual laziness and their waywardness, which they had embraced by settling into the culture of the surrounding peoples, which was going on by this time, for a couple of generations at least. And if you can remember well enough to be able to compare the nature and sort of the whole outworkings or the the basic characteristics of Samson's judgeship compared to the other judges that we've been introduced to in this book, his didn't look like any of those other judgeships. And while all those other judges, as I noted were emblematic of the Messianic Deliverer, Samson's was the most pointed. Now when we come back after doing another song, what I'm going to be dealing with are two final elements that I want to note about Samson's life. The first one is to again highlight Samson being a type of Christ. And secondly... I want to deal with what was truly a a quandary to me as I began studying this book to preach it, is why was Samson listed in Hebrews chapter 11, which we know as faith's hall of fame, when it seems more appropriate that Samson would end up in some kind of faith hall of shame. Let's stand as we continue in worship. It is the most compelling story ever. The most compelling story of all time. And God has been diligently giving signs and testimonies and not so subtle hints from Genesis onward concerning His wondrous plan to deliver mankind from their inevitable, apart from Him, from their inevitable rendezvous with eternal condemnation. And so Samson is only the latest in this book. From the first week in this book, I established that each one of the judges was provided by God as a deliverer slash redeemer slash savior. And that isn't some convenient fabrication to make the Old Testament somehow come alive. It is... Actually, the way that the word used in the book of Judges as a judge can be used and is used variously within the Old Testament. Each of the judges is one of God's living billboards, as I like to call them, showing the way to the once-for-all coming, capital D, Deliverer. But of all the judges that we've seen in this book, I don't think any are as clear as the witness and the testimony and the billboard as Samson. With all of the other judges in the book, remember we had that classic cycle that kept repeating throughout the generations of the judges, and that's that was this, that, that God's people fell into rebellion against the Lord. And then God, because He's a loving God, would bring stinging discipline on them because that's what it took to get them out of their stupor. And they would finally fess up to the Lord, they would apologize, and then God would faithfully send another human deliverer who rescued them from whatever or whoever the oppressors were. And so now, as I proceed, remember Jesus' important words to the disciples thousands of years later, or at least a thousand years later, on the road to Emmaus. Luke records it in chapter 24, verse 27. Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to the disciples the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So, what I want to do now is I want to answer those, deal with those two issues that I mentioned. First, about Samson being a type of Christ, and secondly, why he appears in Hebrews 11. So let's jump back, if you will, to the beginning of Samson's advent. And I use that word particularly. Is there anything at all familiar about Judges chapter 13, verse 3? That's where we read this. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, who in this case is Samson's mother. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, if I didn't know any better, I would think I was reading the Annunciation, as it's called, of Christ by the angel Gabriel to Mary a thousand years later. Consider this. Samson was raised up by God for what purpose? For no other reason than to save his people from their sins. And yet, how did God's people respond to Samson? They wanted nothing of it. So they didn't cry out to the Lord for mercy. They didn't cry out to the Lord for redemption or for saving. But Samson is brought into the world by God's design and Samson does it for them, precisely because they would not. The people of Jesus' day were no different than the people of Samson's day. Let's jump up into the New Testament to the chapter, uh, chapter 3 of the book of Romans from the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that is Paul writing through the inspiration of God on high of what the fate of every human being who comes into the world is. We do not come into the world and being peculiarly gifted with some, some ability to perceive the universe and our surroundings, we somehow intuit that there is a Creator. No one seeks after God. No one has anything to boast about. We have been called by God's mercy and grace. Consider, where were Jesus' opponents, or rather, where were Jesus' supporters when he was in dire need of support? And I'm talking now about that fateful evening in the Garden of Gethsemane when he would be turned over. Where is Israel? In the book of Judges, during the whole epic of Samson, as God's deliverer slash savior, did it strike anyone that the only time in Samson's life, from what we have recorded, the only time that we hear from God's people is when God's people bind the very deliverer that God sent, and they deliver their deliverer over to the enemies? Hmm. again a thousand years later in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27 and the crowds released Barabbas for them but after having Jesus scourged Pilate delivers Jesus their deliverer over to be crucified let's consider now Samson's riddle about the lion now as Samson gave it It was simply an amusement to himself, by which he thought that he might be able to not only entertain himself, but also to make a quick score if he could win the bet with the Philistines that they wouldn't be able to solve the riddle in the appointed time. But could Samson's silly little riddle be something far more significant You remember the riddle he said in Judges 14, verse 14, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. If we view Samson's riddle in a messianic prophetic light, is it really such a stretch to see in that riddle the conquest of Satan himself by the ultimate big D deliverer? Remember, Samson's lion is just a beast, but it is a devourer. And in Malachi chapter 3, Satan is clearly the one in view who in the text in Malachi is designated and called and named the devourer, whom only the Lord can rebuke. And in the last day, and I'm referring to the eschaton, or what we call the end times, where everything's going to just just culminate, and the big climax is going to come, and Jesus is going to return, and, and all that, the world's going to end. And, and, I mean, we're talking about the end of the end of the end. The one who had been devouring over the millennia, that is Satan, will be the one who is finally once for all devoured. And out of the conquest of the one who formerly was the strong devourer came something sweet. Namely, eternal victory. Eternal life to all who believe. Another thought. Samson appears in the book of Judges as the final of the deliverer's who come in uniquely empowered by the Holy Spirit. But God's people in that time never cried out to their Deliverer. They never cried out to Yahweh. Again, Samson did it for them. So what you could say is that out of the spiritually dead carcass of every sinful man, the Deliverer, big D, brings forth something sweet. And I mean that in an ultimate sense. Meaning the Deliverer, Jesus, brings forth a whole renewed being out of the sin-tainted, spiritually dead carcass of everyone, as I said, who comes into this world already condemned, having inherited sin from our forefathers and mothers. At the climax, there's Samson in the temple. Of the false god Dagon. And Samson's final saving work is accomplished in his death. But even more than that. In taking down their false god. Samson, unbeknownst to even him. Was laying the foundation for the future. For the final deliverance of God's people from the wicked Philistines. Once for all. So what we have, I think, profoundly portrayed as one of those, those billboards along the highway of life is the gospel. It's the good news of what God has done for mankind. They're portrayed for us in full cinematographic technicolor. And then finally, I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 called Faith's Hall of Fame. Hebrews chapter 11. Again, it's called popularly Faith's Hall of Fame. We begin in verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, of David, and of Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, who by faith performed acts of righteousness and obtained promises, who by faith shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, who by faith escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, and by faith became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. But as I said, being familiar now with, with what we have been given of Samson's life, he's not one you would think of as being meritoriously inducted into faith's hall of fame. But then let's remember that that designation of Hebrews 11 as Faith's Hall of Fame is not an inspired inclusion in the Scriptures. That's just a popular heading given to it by somebody who knows when. And because guys like me and many others over the, over the years like the sound of it and like kind of what it portrays, we grabbed onto it as well. But that's not inspired. And so for the moment, I want you to kind of put that out of your mind because in Hebrews chapter 11 while not getting as much airtime so to speak as Samson we are introduced and, and and people are named there who we can look up and who we may know of if we've read through the old testament we know themselves had also had really inconsistent faith track records so clarity comes when we consider the broad purpose of the book of Hebrews, instead of getting too microscopic on chapter 11. Chapter 11, in fact, the whole, uh, well, chapter 11 is not highlighting, as I classically kind of view it, chapter 11 is not there highlighting super saints who were far and away heads above all the normal people and normal believers of the day. In fact, the very purpose of the whole book of Hebrews is to elevate Jesus to the highest heights as being the one and only God of all gods who answers to no one and is inferior to no one and no thing. And if we just read beyond chapter 11 into chapter 12, The first two verses say, therefore, meaning in light of what you just read in Hebrews chapter 11 and those names and what they accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, but also what we know about them if we've studied our Bible, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, meaning again, those listed right before this passage, let us also, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So again, by reading just the next two verses in the context there, we get chapter 11, that, that there's this, this ought to be this big eureka of understanding exactly what chapter 11 is for and about. Now again, I've always viewed the people of chapter 11 as being the bigwigs. The ones who established themselves as being these extraordinary people of faith. The successful, the grand saints in the hall of fame. And while there is an element of that in chapter 11, don't get me wrong. We also read, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Meaning what? Well, let us Just like Rahab, lay aside every encumbrance. And we know what she had to deal with. She was a woman of ill repute. Let us lay aside every encumbrance, like Jacob, who was a conniving swindler. Let us lay aside every encumbrance, like Gideon, who really, when you think about it, he was a faith wimp. You remember him? Oh, Lord, uh, if this is really and you really want me to do this, uh, let the fleece fall over here on the ground, and then let it be dry on top. Lord does that. Got it. Okay, Lord, let me try another one. Now, do it the opposite way, okay? Just so I know it's you. Okay, well, that's pretty good. Now, Lord, let me just... Okay, I mean, reality. And then we have David. Good grief, what did David have to lay aside? His family was in a shambles. David had a heart for God, we're told. He was the apple of the Lord's eye, we're told that too. And yet, David, are you kidding me? We know what David didn't was. David was an adulterer. David was a murderer, having murdered Bathsheba's husband, who was a loyal, faithful soldier of David's. Faith's Hall of Fame. David, really? Gideon, really? Rahab, really? Jacob, really? And then we come to our man of the hour, Samson. The point is this look at what God did and does through these genuinely flawed humans of which we are a part of the alumni of frail faithers, which is why the rest of verse 2 in Hebrews chapter 12 is enlightening, saying that is exactly why. We don't depend or rely on our faith. Instead, we need to be fixing our eyes where? On those super saints listed in chapter 11? No, we need to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us, despising the shame for us, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in the book of Judges, It highlights the failings of those that Hebrews 11 calls faithful people as warnings to us. And yet Hebrews highlights the successes of the faithful, reminding us in Hebrews 12, verse 2, "...consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself," why? "...so that you will not grow weary and lose heart." And so people like Samson point us to Jesus. He points us to the one whose faith is unfaltering, the one whose faith is unwavering, the one whose faith record, faith track record is impeccable. And because of that, our faith is certain if we believe. Now, let me point out. God knew every one of the judges. God knew every one of the kings, the good and the bad. He knew every one of the prophets. He knew every one of the disciples. And he chose them, nonetheless, to do his work. He chose the foolish to confound the wise, and the weak to confound the strong. And yet, this is what we read. Make note of when it was written, about 63 A.D. This is what we read. And yet... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here it is. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. For all of the apparent incongruencies between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Compare what I just read, again, written in 63 Anno Domini, 63 years after the death of Jesus, with what was written 1,410 years before Jesus was ever born. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And remember this, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. That has to do with greatness. That's why they would go through and and number their ranks, not only to shore up uh, and realize how many they actually had in their military, but obviously the bigger community you were, the more power you had, the greater you were. He reminds Israel that they were the puniest of all of the nations. So he didn't choose them because they were great and mighty and could serve him well, but rather because the Lord loved you. Because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. This is what we read in the Psalms 139. Think about you now, personalize this. Think about you before you are born, but you've been conceived, and even prior to conception. The Lord. Knows. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame, that is, my body, my physical being, was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, O God, have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. What is amazing about this psalm is that it's not just about Samson. It's not just about David. Wrote it. It is about you, and it is about me. And in spite, not because of, but in spite of who each one of us is, <laughs> God said, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I love you, and I'm calling you unto myself. Everybody that is here, if you have bowed your knee to Jesus, God said, "I love you." And if there's any time, any time, any point in your life, well, you go. Not that you'd say it. Wow, well, oh Lord, you know, I was always a great student. Obviously, I'm not talking about me. I was always a great student and smart and intellectually astute and writer of great books and everything else. So, yeah, I, you know, God says, on the contrary, I knew you before you had no substance. And not only did I know you before all of that, I also know you after all of that. I know every day that you're going to breathe and I know when your end is going to come, and I know every sin that you have ever done or thought of doing. And if you ever think you get disgusted with yourself, which I do, I'm like, really, God? I don't get it. If I were me, I mean, if I were you, knowing me, I would so boot me out of the universe. And God says, and you, you only know you at that moment. I know all of your sins all at once, so get a clue. There is nothing in you that commended yourself to me. So don't ever think that you can do so much for the kingdom as to be my special one. Because what did Paul tell us, writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? All our good deeds, all our good works are as filthy rags before the Lord. And so we look at Samson. (laughs) <laughs> we've had some fun with him going, what? A knucklehead. Are you kidding me? Samson, how could you? I mean, I would never. <laughs> you know, but for the grace of God, truly, there go I. We have nothing to commend ourselves. And God says, once you were not a people. Do you understand what that means? It means you you were not, you were not, uh, I, It's I don't even know if I can put it into words properly. You were not a people. You were not recognized by me. You were, just, you, you were like non-entities. But now you are the people of God. Why? Because God's declared it. And God chose to put his love upon you to receive or reject. I'm thankful for Samson's witness and testimony. I'm encouraged when I run into knuckleheads in the scriptures because it gives me hope. And it should you as well. When Jesus was ready to go back to heaven, just before he left, this is what he said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Again, his, basically his last words before he departed. Only in Jesus and only realizing our security has nothing to do with who and what we are. Does it thrill God's heart when we obey him and when we do things for his kingdom? And Absolutely thrills his heart. But is that why he selected you? Is that why he's patient with you? No. No. It's only because he looks at the cross and he sees your and my redeemer, my deliverer, my substitute, my savior. All praise and glory belong to him. Let me have you stand. Dear Lord, what a great God that we serve. And Lord, I just pray that um, the message that we heard today was uh, an encouragement to you and to the people here, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that uh, as uh, Samson is an example for us, that we realize that we don't have to knock down any big buildings. But he has called us as his children, Lord, to go out from this place and to be his representatives to he has called us to to be used by him, Lord. So help us to be obedient to do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.